Keeping up on Seattle-area politics is tough. Who has time to sit through a three-hour council meeting and sort out which decisions will affect you most? Please vote aye. 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 Well, what if getting caught up on current events was as simple as getting a cup of coffee with some City Hall insiders who know which stories are hot and which are not? Welcome to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. And thank you for being with us on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, where the coffee is spiked with a double shot of public affairs news. I'm Brian Callanan, host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. With me is Seattle City Council Insights, Kevin Schofield. Kevin, good to see you. Hey, Brian. And a special thanks to City Grind Espresso, the owners, John and Charlie. They run the coffee stand on the first floor of City Hall. The sounds you are hearing in the background, that's right, they are our background noise sponsor. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay, let's get going with Right Here, Right Now. Okay, so with this part of the show, we are working through what's happening right now in Seattle area politics here in the last week of February, and it's all about the state business tax. The council is getting a briefing from the Office of Intergovernmental Relations on Monday the 24th. We're talking about some changes here. This used to be House Bill 2907, and now it's House Bill 2948. Some bigger changes here, some more dollars on the table here. Kevin, let's break down some of the big details here. What's going on? So last week was the cutoff for bills to get voted out of what they call their House of Origin, whatever house the bill started in. Right. 2907 didn't make it off the floor, so that died. Mm -hmm. And now 2948 is sort of a resurrection of that. The one exception for bills now in the the rest of this short state legislative session is anything that's necessary to implement the budget. Right. So the new version's got this little codicil in it that says that uh, for the payroll tax, a small tiny little fraction is going to go back to the state yeah. for kind of audits and oversights to make sure it's all going on. That makes it yeah. necessary to implement the budget. Yeah, the Employment and then, Security Department working on that piece. That's right. right. And then and then the rest of uh, the bill is, you know, uh, most of it's still the same kind of structure as 2907, but there are uh, some changes. So 2907, it said the county could uh, impose a payroll tax mm-hmm. on people with $150,000 salaries or more yep. with some exceptions to the kind of businesses. Right. And it, the tax could be between 0.1% and 0.2%. Right. And that's gone up now. What they've said now is no range. It's 0.25%. Mm-hmm. And they've said that um, any city in the county that has more than 60,000 people, which is about nine cities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um any of them can elect to be a participating city, and then of the payroll taxes the county raises within their city, they're going to get 0.1% of that 0.25%. Right. So within gonna, their boundaries. So yeah, they're going to get about two-fifths of, of, of those revenues just yeah. pass straight through to them. There's some complicated math going on there, There's I know. There's a bunch but, of complicated But in math. terms of the actual dollars raised, the old bill would have raised about $120 million. It looks like this new one is about $152 million or something like that. Seattle would get a bigger share of that. But still, the big argument is, is there going to be a preemption where Seattle would not be allowed to go after its own type of business tax. And that's the big concern right now. Yeah, and that, and that in this new structure, uh, looks to be something that would be a negotiating point. Kind of. Yes. It looks like they've structured it now so that it's very clear that, you know, Seattle would basically have a payroll tax that would be implemented by the county. Yep. And and certain amount of money would be passed through. And it looks like the way this is set up right now, and there's still a lot of negotiations to go on this bill, yeah. the... Um, 
the the people at the table could negotiate. Well, you know, maybe we'll raise that two point five that point two five percent limit for the county to something higher, mm-hmm. and we'll raise the city's share of that, so we can give the city a larger payroll tax, but they don't get to impose their own right. in return for that. And, right. you know, there's a lot of precedent for this. Yep. The local option sales tax right, right. last year did this. Mm-hmm. The way that the state and the city split real estate excise tax revenues goes very long uh, the same way. And, you know, to the state, there's a benefit for this because they get to tell taxpayers, whether it's individuals or businesses, here's the most you're going to pay yeah. for this. Let us worry about how to divvy it up between right. the state, the, sta- the county, and the city. Right, right. But you know you with certainty it's going to be this much. And there's an interesting piece here, too. There was a quote from Drew Stokesbury, the representative from the Auburn area in the Seattle Times about this, basically saying, He likes a system like this because he said, and this was the quote in the Times, he doesn't really trust Seattle politicians to do the job. And that's a very stark differentiation there. I think what we're seeing is a lot of people in the county area, and this is going to go through that new regional homelessness system that's being set up right now. A lot of people that are in other cities outside of Seattle in the county are saying, hey, wait a minute. We need to have some control over this. We don't trust Seattle, I think, is what I'm hearing from a lot of them. And a lot of those other small cities have not bought into the regional homeless authority. True, right? true. They may. There's still, you know, the county and, and Seattle are still trying to get them to the table and try to get figure out what would it take to get them to buy into it. Yeah. But they would give them, you know, nine cities, including Seattle, so eight smaller cities in the area, yeah. uh, an opportunity to have their own revenue stream and start to... Um, really pay for a lot of these kinds of uh, homelessness services yeah. and, and affordable housing. True, true. I want to touch on one last battle before we let this go. It really has been a back and forth between Mayor Durkin and Councilmember Sawant. Councilmember Sawant, of course, talking about this tax Amazon measure that she's been trying to work on. She's saying we need more money for homelessness services. We need more money for affordable housing. She points to the McKinsey report recently that said in between $450 million to $1.1 billion per year over the next 10 years just to try to catch up here. So uh, she had something to say, Councilmember Sawant did, right after the House bill was dropped here, 2948. She said, it's completely inadequate for our needs, but I welcome the possibility for King County big business taxes to fund housing and essential services. But let's be clear, big businesses haven't suddenly grown a conscious conscience. What they want is preemption, a ban on taxing Amazon and other major corporations. They see the tax Amazon movement building momentum and they are afraid. Your thoughts on that, Kevin? You know, she she is certainly right that this is not enough. Yeah. Like the, need, the needs, particularly for affordable housing over the yeah. next 10 to 20 years, are going to be significantly larger than what this bill will bring in. But this but, is something that businesses are agreeing to, at least thus far. Yeah, this is something that businesses seem to be, certainly the big ones in the region, seem to be uh, to, uh, agreeing with so yeah. far. And uh, and part of that, again, is the certainty of they know the maximum that this is going to be, whereas, yeah. you know, they don't know what Seattle would do if it really has independent authority to do this, which technically it does right now. So then Mayor Durkin is sounding a much more conciliatory tone on this. She really, it seems, wants to have a seat at the table and be part of negotiating Mm -hmm. what these numbers end up being at the end. Right, right. Rather than Sawant's approach of just saying, look, we must oppose this at all yeah, and yeah. you know, and there, there's political calculus in both sides of that. Absolutely, we'll see how it ends up. Absolutely true. So a lot still ahead on that one. Thanks for the input there, Kevin. Let's switch it up to now. Hear this. 
All right, this is the part of the podcast where we review some of the activity over the last week and listen in to what city leaders are saying about it. Going to do a double dose of this today, maybe even a quadruple dose. Got a lot of sound bites coming your way. I want to start with the council's recent move to pass an ordinance to increase the number of permits allowed for city-endorsed encampment sites, or tiny house villages, up to 40. That's the backstory. We're going to dive into details in just a minute. But in the meeting to approve this, Councilmember Peterson brought up three amendments, reducing that permit cap to 15 camps, not allowing permits for encampments that are not tiny home villages, and calling for a 2023 sunset date on the authorization for permitting. He turned this into a substitute bill seconded by Councilmember Herbold. And then here's what Councilmember Sawant had to say. This is really a no vote disguised as a substitute. And since Councilmember Peterson obviously opposes expanding opportunities to build tiny house villages, I would have preferred if he was just honest about it and voted no on the bill. All right. Now, as it turns out, Councilmember Peterson did end up voting no on this legislation eventually when his amendments were not adopted. But here's how Councilmember Herbold reacted to what Councilmember Sawant said about Councilmember Peterson's intentions. And so I believe that Councilmember Peterson has brought forward this amendment in good faith. Nobody accused Councilmember Lewis last week um, of acting in bad faith. Um, I believe that Councilmember Peterson heard my concerns and tried to bring bring forward a proposal. I'm not supporting that proposal, but I would just like us to um, show a little grace for one another up here on this dais. And I will throw in Councilmember Juarez, too, pro tem council president, with Councilmember Gonzalez on leave. She chimed in, too. I, too, will agree and second what Councilmember Herbolt said about impugning other people's other people's intentions. Um, I think we're all here trying to do the right thing in a good way. So with that, I'm going to move forward with our vote. Kevin, I played all those just to give people an idea that, who are listening here just how chippy it's getting right now on the council. Councilmember Sawant really trying to make some strides here in the early part of the year. You can see that in legislation she's been working on. But I think we're seeing some pushback here on the council. What did you make of that interaction? Well, it's also important to point out that uh, Councilmember Sawant had a lot of her supporters. True in the audience as well while that was going on. Right. Councilmember Juarez said, let's not make this a rally. Yeah. Right, right. And Councilmember Juarez, who was president pro tem for the day, was really pushing back on a lot of kind of the rowdiness in the crowd, yeah. trying to keep a level of civility in there. But, you know, I, I, there are certainly questions asked about why Councilmember Sawant is taking this approach, right? And you can look at it at one level as this is populist politics, right? She is, and, you know, the, she's pulling stuff straight out of the populist toolbox. Yep. She is demonizing her opponents. Yeah. She She's playing to her base, mm-hmm. and her base is clearly responding. Yes, this, right. So, uh, so that's one one potential part of this. Another part of you know why she may be doing this is as a negotiating tactic. She certainly likes to introduce the most extreme possible version right. of a bill, and. Well, I've never heard her say this out loud. You could argue that she's doing that because it's a negotiating tactic. Sure. And she'll know that and the rest of the council will sort of compromise and pull it a little more towards the center. Definitely happened with minimum wage, yeah. Despite her protests over, you know, watering down legislation. Right. Right, one of her right. favorite phrases to say. Yes, yes. Um, but it'll end up something in the middle. So yeah. by proposing something extreme, knowing it'll end up in the middle, maybe she gets a little bit more out of it. Rather yeah. than starting with, the re- you know, what the rest of the council members try to, seem to try to do is start with a reasonable position and then maintain the reasonable position. Right, right. And in looking at this, in terms of what the city got out of this, it looks like 40 of these uh, types of camps would be permitted, up from three permitted right now specifically. There are nine currently in the city, some of these grandfathered in without the specific tiny home village language in their situations. But bottom line for me, the city only has money to actually create two more of these. So is that 
Is that 40 number real, I guess, is what I'm thinking? The 40 number is going to be hard to, to, to arrive at any time yeah. yeah. in, in the next several years. In terms of sighting, I mean, in a lot of things. Of, you know, the, it, it, as, as several of the council members pointed out as this debate was happening, the number of permits is really not the limit to these, particularly because, you know, even if they didn't up this number of permits, the reason we have nine of these kinds of encampments today, even though officially by law they can only have three, is because the city also has the right to issue interim use permits for basically whatever they want, wherever they want, for up to a year yeah. with extension for another year. So this is a way to kind of codify more their intent of having these kinds of tiny home villages and encampments in a place and make a permit directly for them. But the limit is really budget, yeah. how much it costs to set up one of these things. Mm -hmm. um, having the community that wants to establish one go through the permitting process, which you know, actually has a long set of rules that they have to yeah. follow. Yeah. Uh, they have to figure out how they're going to do security. They have to figure out case management. They have to figure out how they're going to have some kind of community connection and be able to have a formalized method of getting feedback from the, from the community yeah. around them, right? They have to satisfy several city departments that they're going to do a responsible job of this. They have to yeah. figure out how they're going to do sanitation all and that. water yeah. and all, you know, porta potties sure. and all that sort of thing. So really a lot goes into this. And then one of the things this new legislation that that they just passed does is it opens up more areas of the city to be potential sites for these by allowing them to be in residential zones and right. not just commercial zones. Right. But citing them is still going to be hard. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a big piece of this. And I wanted to bring in what the mayor was saying about this too. She issued a statement, as she's been known to do after some of these council decisions, and said this, Mayor Durkin looks forward to working with council and community to determine the right path forward for expanding tiny home villages and with the state and King County to provide additional progressive revenue sources to support them. I think she keeps on hitting on that message about King County, about the state, too, going forward here. I know that she, the mayor, has scrapped with Councilmember Sawant before, and I'm wondering if the county and the state have kind of turned into uh, Shama Shields for her. And I'm copywriting that term. They're both spelled with a K, just so you know. Uh, is that the angle here? It looks like that idea of bringing in those different government agencies is sort of something that's helping the mayor, I guess, have some backing when she tries to, well, I guess, run into a conflict with uh, Council Member Sawant. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to say. This might be really specific just around the Regional Homeless Authority. True, yeah. And this is one of the things that Council Member Peterson brought up in his amendments that didn't get passed. Yeah. What he was trying to say was, rather than us go down this path of, you know, spooling up a whole big thing around setting up a bunch of these encampments, mm -hmm. just as we're trying to set up a regional housing authority, yeah. which is supposed to be, you know, our center of excellence for this and a place where we have all of our expertise yeah. on how to do this stuff really well. He was saying, look, let's put a three-year sunset date on this so that by then the regional homeless authority will be established, it'll yep. have its five-year plan, and they can take over responsibility for figuring out what to do yeah. with tiny home villages and and sanctioned encampments and permitting of these things. Yeah. So we can really sort of get out of that business and let the experts, rather than you know nine people sitting on the dais yeah. in council chambers, figure out what the right policy is for right. doing this. Right. And the mayor may be trying to echo a bit of that, yeah, that yeah. sentiment as well. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. All right, even more fun and exciting sound bites coming your way. Here's a little nugget from Mayor Durkin's State of the City. Durkin talking about public safety. Let's listen. For many people, increased public safety means more police officers, changing our gun laws, and a criminal justice system that deals better with repeat offenders. Many others believe we need more economic opportunity for youth more intervention and diversion programs, 
and more behavioral health treatment. And my answer is, we need all of the above. Okay, so the mayor was talking about a ton of things. Affordable housing, Seattle Promise Program for a community college, the waterfront, Metro bus service. But this public safety piece, I want to try to talk about what she's proposing here. What might be new in terms of, she mentioned gang violence, a few other things here. What did you notice specific to public safety in this State of the City address, Kevin? Well, I thought overall... It was almost a missed opportunity for mm. her, where given that this is so high profile right now, she could have come in and said, we're going to do something big to tackle this. And and there is almost nothing new. You didn't see anything there was, big. There was, there was okay. one, one new thing she said in there, yeah. which was that um, she's going to create a new, what she calls community response program, right. where she's going to have a set of people ready to go yeah. who were members of the community, former gang members. Right. Um, trusted community members yep. who, when there is a shooting incident, can respond it's with mi- within minutes out to the community yep. and sort of de-escalate situations, prevent gang retaliation, right. do other things to sort of calm the situation. Right. So she wants to be able to do that. That's a new idea. That's an yeah. interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. She also said... You know, she, she, she gave acknowledgement to the fact that there are really kind of two camps in the city, two polar camps mm. on how to address this kind of thing. One camp says, we need a lot more police officers. Yes. And the other says, we need a lot more programs. We need diversion programs. We need sort of economic assistance sure. for people. Yeah. We need to address the root causes that lead to gang violence and yeah. lead to all the other problems that are leading to these public safety issues. Yeah. And she, what she said was... It, you know, I'm not going to pick a side. It's really both. We yeah, need, we need to do both of those. Which yeah. it's almost, you know, it's almost a free throwaway line. Yeah, right? she's trying to be conciliatory. Yeah, she's trying to be kind of in the middle and be a good mayor and bring everybody sure. together yeah. on this. And yeah. you know, you can applaud her for that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you know, she's going to have to deliver on stuff. It's going to be very interesting to see how this community response program comes together uh, when you bring in those uh, trusted community members, etc how that response will look, how they will work with uh, the Seattle Police Department, which I should point out, they're still working on the possibility of having some sort of storefront at 3rd and Pine where those terrible shootings happened last month. But this is something that's going to take time. I talked with Councilmember Lewis about it. That's his district. He's been talking about it quite a bit. But this is something that really takes time to put in place. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. And and, and the important part is, I mean, the mayor did her state of the city down in South uh, Seattle there in the Rainier Valley area. I think what she's trying to say with that, too, is this isn't just a downtown issue. It isn't just a downtown issue. Now, yeah. now one of the interesting lines that Mayor Durkin used in her State of the City address was to say being progressive means you really have to show progress. Yeah, yeah, she's right? going to so hammer that one home. She's yeah. been trying to position herself as the city politician who gets results. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe, and that maybe at some level, sort of counterpositioning herself against the city council. Sure. Sure. Which does a lot of symbolic stuff. Right. Particularly around resolutions, uh, but isn't necessarily as focused, you know, day to day basis on the results. Yeah. But you know, the, but if she's signing up for that, she's actually going to have to deliver results on big problems like this. Yeah. No, th- there's going to be a lot ahead with that one. So thanks for breaking that one down. All right, we're going to sort out a few more things with our final segment here. What's next? <laughs> All right, Kevin, I wanted to touch on what's happening with sugar-sweetened beverages uh, in Seattle. Recent report uh, published in the Times here saying that 
uh, there was a drop in consumption. So, hey, this is looking good. This is really working. I know you've re- researched this like crazy. There's a lot of different places that have been doing studies like this. You had some questions about this, and I wanted to break those down. Yeah, so just to give you a quick bit of history on this, yeah. Seattle uh, passed a sweet and beverage tax of 1.75 cents per ounce mm-hmm. on sugar beverages back in uh, June of 2017 to go right. in effect January 1st, 2018. Right. They set aside some of the revenues to say, let's do a big study on this. And, and through city of Seattle and King County, they contracted with the University of Washington Public Health Research Group to go do a bunch of studies. Mm-hmm. They you know, quickly ran out and did a baseline study. So yeah. they knew, okay, what does it look like before the tax? And then they've been um, collecting data. They were supposed to put out mid-year last year a report on the first year of, you know, uh, first year after the tax goes in effect, mm-hmm. that report still hasn't come out. So it's about nine okay. months late okay. on that. We're okay. still waiting for that. They give kind of flaky answers <laughs> to why it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> okay. it, you know, it is a big study with lots of different component parts, but you know, we're two years into this tax yet, and we haven't seen the official results there. Now, there are a lot of other cities, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, Boulder, Colorado, yeah. who yeah. have also passed these taxes. And there have been a lot of academic studies that have been done across all those. And, you know, quite frankly, it's inconclusive. Yeah, like why is it working in Berkeley, but it didn't work right next door in Oakland? I I know that's one example. Yeah, yeah, Berkeley, and, you know, there's there's so many different factors that are involved in these. What's the geography of the city? So can people just sort of walk across the city line and, and, you know, buy a, if, if you live near the edge of the city, can you, you know, go to a convenience store two blocks down the street from you that's just outside the city yep. and not have to pay the tax, yeah. right? Which in Philadelphia is a lot easier to do than in Seattle sure. where we're surrounded by water on right, a right, of right. different sides, right? right? So our, right. Ge- our topography works against us for yeah. things like that. Yeah. But there's the size of the tax. There's what beverages are taxed. So Philadelphia also taxes diet beverages yeah. and not just sugared ones, which yeah. means sort of the, the substitution question. Sure. But what they're finding in some of these cities, at least in some of these reports, and a lot of them are conflicting is that while uh, you know putting this tax in place does seem to decrease the number of sugar beverages that people buy in the city themselves where the tax is imposed uh-huh. they see increased sales just across the border yeah and then they see uh, increased consumption of other kind of sugared food hmm. right so if the idea so, is to reduce sugar yeah so if it's to reduce sugar and reduce calories it's not clear that that's happening but again there's, there's no clear, consistent methodology across yeah. all these research studies that yeah. are done. There's no um, consistency in the results that we're seeing for the reports that are coming out. So two years in, while we're still waiting for our own report, which, by the way, is actually not going to be comprehensive. I see. In terms of consumption, it only looks at children and parents and low-income families. Yeah. It's not going to report on the rest of us. Yeah. Right? So we just get these little glimpses <laughs> from all these different pieces. Yeah. And it... You know, it's just not coming together in a bigger picture about whether these things actually work. Does this tax actually improve public health? All right, Kevin, thanks for the breakdown there. I wanted to update people on uh, a couple of issues that I've been following on Seattle Channel when it comes to gun control, gun rights. The state legislature working on dozens of bills uh, this year. A number of them did not survive. Most notably, this ban on high-capacity magazines didn't get through. This ban on so-called assault weapons didn't survive either. Also, this idea to require training for people carrying a concealed pistol license, that's not happening. The two that are still alive this session, and these are going to be important to watch, include having the Washington State Patrol 
the state conduct all gun purchase background checks. This one has bipartisan support. This one's important because the current federal system that's in place, it's a bit of a mishmash in that uh, these different gun sellers are actually calling the state. They're calling different jurisdictions to make sure people are okay. So hopefully that's something that can help work out some details there. And one other one that's very interesting, establishing the Office of Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention. Uh, This is Maka Dingra's bill, the uh, Democrat out of Redmond here, seen by some opponents as simply a lobbying effort for gun control, looking at gun violence as a public health issue. That's a big, big uh, touchstone issue for a lot of people who work on these. So we still have a lot ahead when it comes to gun control, gun rights in these final furious last couple weeks for this short session in Olympia. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. But finally, probably the most important part of the show, Kevin, Let's talk about macarons. What's the background here? You brought some in. You, you've been baking these or learning how to bake these. I, I've been baking them. And, and, you know, every time I do this, I learn a little bit more. I see. Um, the, the, the macarons themselves, the sort of the cookie part of it, doesn't really have a lot of flavor. It's just kind of really sugary. The flavor part is all kind of on the filling that yeah. you s- sort of sandwich in between yeah, yeah, yeah. these things. So I brought in some where uh, it's, it's a chocolate filling in the middle, but I added some orange in there. Oh, so okay. I, used, I, I, I infused the cream. That's, okay. that's how, that's how the, the bakers call it stuff. I, I infused the cream. I put I mixed in some some um, orange rind in okay. there, which is where all the great orange flavor is. Okay. That's kind of mixed in there, and it really kind of pops really well. Okay. So well, I've watched a lot of baking shows, Kevin, so uh, I'm going to see. This is not up to that standard. No, come on. Let's, let's see what we got here. So uh, which go, one should I Go for I an orange one. Go orange one. one. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to grab yeah, this up. Um, uh, texture's good. Oh, I see what you're doing here. A little orange in the middle. All right. Here comes first by the macaron. Three, two, one. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like the crumble on the outside. There's a little something extra in the middle there. I, I do taste that chocolate you're trying to do there. Chocolate and the orange kind of mm-hmm. comes through a second. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. It kind of hits you towards the end, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Wow. Kevin, that's pretty strong, man. Um, it, and this is, let me know about this. You've been taking a class on this, or what's, what's next, I guess? Oh, good question. What's the next what's, challenge? Oh, uh. I don't know. I haven't picked because I'm going to need yet. some beef Wellington next week. I'll just put it in order yeah, now. Is well, that good? I don't do the red meats. You oh, okay, get okay. Any beef out of me. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, as the weather starts to get a little better, I, I might. Yeah, you know, it's going to be time to, to dust off the grill again. So maybe Indeed. it'll be interesting. Marinades for grilling coming up. In I the see. Future. Okay. But uh, you know, I, I do. I do a lot of bread bacon too. So okay. maybe we'll get. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll bring in some bread. I, I can't with the many talents of Kevin Schofield. Thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> maybe the One, few talents. No, come on now. Me. Come on now. Not just great public affairs, but great baking too. I'm gonna finish this off in just a minute. Kevin, thanks a lot for being with me. Thanks, Brian. All right. So the next time you want to know what's going on in local politics, give us a listen and find out what's brewing here on Seattle News Views and Brews. Reach us via email at. Seattle News Views and Brews at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and thanks for listening. Seattle News Views and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2020.